0: provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite obstacle course racing but before I get started I want to give a shout out to human octane if you're the kind of person who pushes the limit then you've got to check out human octane apparel training and racing apparel designed by OCR athletes and these guys just get it everything they make dries lightning fast has zippered pockets is abrasion resistant in high contact areas without bulky padding? I've gotten to know these guys, and trust me, they're going to out-innovate the competition when it comes to OCR gear. Check them out at humanoctane.com. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this.
1: Hey everybody, Sean Khan here, co-host, new co-host of the Natural Running Network. I'm here with Rich today, and we're having some great topics. With Tahoe on the horizon, OCR World Championships on the horizon. Rich and I thought it would be a great idea to talk about periodization and more than that, go into how do you prepare for, for Tahoe, a 16.8 mile race, and then do well at the 3K to, in two weeks if you're doing OCR World Championships and are have the ability to perform well in both of those races. So Rich, how are you this morning?
0: If I was better, you've heard me say this, if I was better, I'd need to be twins.
1: <laughs> so, you know, I think we should just get right into it. What do you think? I'm good, man. Okay. So I guess the the question, and kind of to expand more upon it, uh, and, you know, an athlete like myself, I know a bunch of my friends that compete in uh, a, a myriad of, uh, plethora of races. How, how do we, in terms of the season, go... To perform at like let's say a beast distance you know 13 to 15 miles have a good performance and then go let's say four to six weeks out and do well in a stadium sprint or a sprint distance
0: okay so this is a this is a topic of conversation i have a lot with a lot of the people i work with because they'll toss this bone at me and say hey by the way i know we've been working at this longer stuff but I really wanna do this sprint distance race with my friends. So what they're asking is to basically completely turn the tables on their body, ask their body to be no longer enduring, but powerful. And there's a big shift that occurs when you try to run fast and hard for a short distance versus trying to go long and enduring for a race such as the Barton World Championships. So I generally like to preface those types of conversations when we start looking at the season as a whole and we start picking events that we're going to compete at. And rather than just kind of randomly picking places that you think you might like to visit, friends have told you they'd like to compete at, you start looking at the grand scheme of things and start deciding what events should precede you know, the more important events. So I guess the first question you need to ask yourself is, where do you feel like you're going to shine? Are you more of a short distance, high intensity athlete, or are you more of an enduring mountain goat type of an athlete? And once you kind of made peace with that, then depending on where you stand in respect to the hierarchy of the sport, meaning that either you're competing and hoping to get into some money or you're just trying to have a good time and stay healthy. Now, clearly, if you're trying to win these races, you really need to pick your battles. You really need to be a little bit more organized with your thoughts. Where am I going to be physically and what's the best course of action to be in the best place I can be physically. So I would like to see athletes going into the new season, 2018, in the early part of the year, I'd like to see some of these guys focus on the shorter distance races first, develop their speed, develop their power. Um, Hopefully in the early part of the season, we're gonna be stronger because we're gonna come off the off season, having put in a lot of homework, getting stronger, possibly even being a little heavier, and then start to build on the volume, but we're gonna go after the intensity first. We wanna build the engine, we wanna get the heart to be strong as it possibly can be, and then we're gonna to start to taper away from the intensity and start working towards the, in the endurance. So if I had a way to monitor their selection and control what races they actually participate in, I think I'd like to see them race the shorter, high-intensity races earlier, focus on the speed, focus on the power, and then start targeting the middle-distance races and then eventually going into world championships with the intent of being prepared for that. So the training is going to start to expand over time, over the season. And we, before the show started, we talked about kind of the middle ground. Where should you kind of hang out? What what kind of training should you be doing? And I think the beauty of this super distance event in the wheelhouse of about 8 miles is a pretty good target for maintaining not only your speed, your fitness, but also your endurance. So, I think a lot of that type of racing is probably really good. I like that the NBC series is focusing on that distance because I think that really showcases the talent of most of these athletes. And then going from that particular distance, moving up to say a 14 mile event is not that big of a push. And quite frankly, if you're pretty well prepared at that distance, then bumping up the intensity and dropping down into some sprints is very tenable as well. So. I don't want to keep rambling about this, but I think from the broad stroke perspective, the hierarchy would be short events, high-intensity training first, kind of settle into the middle-distance events for the majority of the season, and then start gearing up for the longer stuff, as opposed to just randomly hitting a beast, hitting a sprint, and trying to be all things at all times when you're not prepared for either.
1: No, I like it. I think we, you know, as just... The, the typical athlete go into a season and to your, your, your point, just almost pick schedules or pick races out and maybe try to space them out maybe four to six weeks, but there's no rhyme or reason in regards to maybe starting with a sprint or starting with a super and almost maintaining that. And then as you get into July, August, September, where, you know, the bigger races such as the beast, such as uh, the Tahoe beast, and then you're getting into world championships it makes a lot of sense. And I think keeping that super, super, almost a super base down uh, makes a lot of sense as well. I guess uh, f- to your standpoint, maybe where would you start in regards to the offseason uh, going to that conversation? How long of an offseason would you say uh, would be kind of uniform or would you say typical to the athlete?
0: Well, I think that the term offseason has kind of a bad rap to it. When you're active all year long, the concept of not being active any longer for any period of time, a week, two weeks, is just mind-boggling for most athletes. It drives them crazy. For me, off-season is essentially just taking the pressure off an athlete. No concern over performance. Don't peg yourself against others and worry about whether you're going to get beat or whether your, your standard is being maintained but just basically relax. Just take, and uh, the timeline really depends on the, the depth of the athlete and the depth of punishment they've taken over the course of the season. So let's say that towards the end of the season, you're pretty broke up. You know, you've run into some injuries. You're trying to come out of these injuries, maybe just forced yourself through the end of the season, forced yourself through the championship events, and basically broken. In that case, I'd like to see more time taken. But if you've really never taxed yourself, if you weren't really big into volume and you haven't really put that much stress on your body, then the amount of time you need to be in the off season is gonna be less. So if I was to put a timeline on it, I would suggest that about a month is a pretty good timeline for someone that is in pretty good repair as they're leaving the season if you've been pretty broke up over the course of the season and you've got some work to do to get things right, I'd say probably two months is probably more uh, of a better target, maybe even as much as three. Now, again, I'm not saying that you're not going to be active. I'm just saying that your focus is going to be more dedicated towards the type of repair you require. Maybe you've uh, been Uh, dealing with a particular nagging injury, maybe it could be your knee, you've been a little plantar fasciitis, maybe Achilles tendonitis, maybe your hip or your back's been bothering you, that's a really good time to start going after drills that are going to help you A, identify what it is that's causing the problem, and B, what you should be doing in order to get yourself back on track so that you're essentially going into the training injury-free. And then you know, obviously enough, I'm going to talk about running mechanics. And in running mechanics, a lot of people, they're fearful of making any type of changes in the way they move during the season. Well, in the off season, that's a perfect time to just slow things down and start to focus on the things that need to be corrected and get it worked out. So when you come into the next season, you're, you're ready to go. Uh, your body is primed and prepared to get the business done. And Quite frankly, I think for most people, from a standpoint of being able to make transitional phases from being a heel striker or improper running gait, you're looking at about a month, and you should be okay, especially if you do the right things and you don't try to force it. The problem is when when we're in the season, everybody's so pensive about the next competition and whether they're going to be able to throw down. And they're trying to do all these things at the same time. They're trying to correct the way they're moving. They're trying to address injuries. And they're trying to perform at an optimal and intense level. You just can't be all these things at the same time. So you have to look at it like fortification. It's a time of the year where you're going to go back and you're going to start looking at how the season went, what kind of things need to be corrected, and then set about making those patches and then come into the season as strong as you possibly can.
1: No, that makes sense. I mean, I can attest to that just from working with you and meeting you last November, learning about gait, correcting that, and then I think it took me about a month, month and a half, just to correct uh, some of the imperfections I had, and then also look at you know heart rate training. I think that just is so huge going into an off season and understanding. Um, the improvements made and then understanding just aerobic base training and things like that. So I, uh, I fully agree with you on that. It just it, it makes a lot of sense.
0: Well, I know some athletes at the elite level who will remain nameless for the sake of this conversation, <laughs> that are now, and have been for the better part of the season, nursing an injury and going into events with trepidation, not sure whether they were going to compete at the level that they're accustomed to or know that they're capable of, because they have this underlying concern that they're about to break, that they've got this injury that's just, let's give it a grade, let's say 10 means you're out, You've, you've tore something, you ripped something, and you're done for the season. And they're hanging at about a seven, and they're fearful of everything they do, and have apprehension going into the events and maybe even rain back on some of the more treacherous components of the race. For example, hard downhill running, the type of elements in the race that puts you in jeopardy if you're not 100%. And they're hanging back where you got an athlete that very well could win the race, but they're just not 100% even mentally. They don't have enough self-assurance to allow themselves to participate at the level of skill that they, they generally or inherently have. So I think that's a really bad idea. I mean, when you know that you're on the edge and you're still trying to race, that's a really, really bad idea. And while, while I'm on that subject, and not to go too far off point, I want to say this too, because I know a lot of these guys out there that have this mentality of Spartan the F up and push through injury during an event. If you twist an ankle I don't care if it's the first 500 yards or you got one mile left to go. If you hurt yourself and you know you're hurt, you stop. You quit that race. You throw your hand up, you get some help, get off the course and set about working on recovery. Whatever modalities you're gonna embrace in order to get yourself back to where you need to be, you need to do it right away. If you think that it's cool To wander through a course, let's say, for example, a beast distance event, and you go nine miles on a twisted ankle, you might as well quadruple the length of time it's going to take to repair it. Every step you take on that ankle is going to cost you four to five times more recovery time. So better to live to fight another day than to be foolish and look for that pat on the back because you're tough as nails when the when you drag yourself across the finish line. Did I say Miguel Medina? I didn't say that, did I? <laughs> I just want to make sure that I didn't say that about Miguel Medina.
1: <laughs> I don't think you said that. Okay, good. Uh, so. I just want
0: to make sure because we're friends, and I don't, I don't want to cause him to feel like I'm, I'm picking on him.
1: Well, you know, it's tough, too, because you go to exactly that point, and then you put the Ultra Beast distance, and obviously – you're almost foreshadowing what could happen to athletes in Tahoe and then what happened to athletes, uh, you know, a few weeks ago in Killington. And it's, uh, it's one of those where unfortunately, you know, an athlete that's not conscious of it. And that just has that goal in their mind, you know, credit to them that they have the toughness, but then also, you know, on the flip side of that, you're just doing yourself such a huge disservice in potentially almost ruining your whole season and, possibly forward so no it's it's a really bad deal
0: the other thing since we're on that point and we're talking about race selection for the season i think it's a bad idea and i've never said this before i'm saying it today i think it's a bad idea to buy a season pass and i'll tell you why you got this season pass and you're compelled to race as often as you can to get your money's worth. And you could see where that kind of sets you up for a bad plan as well, right? Absolutely. You start to do races that you probably have no business physically doing. You're not prepared. You're like, you're half a tank and you're going into an event and you're just taxing your body. And so before we got on live and we were starting to talk about what we're gonna talk about, we started talking about how often someone might wanna race how much time they should take off between races. And we talked about the fact that a lot of people don't really even know whether they're in a good place to race again or whether they're going to be able to produce 100% going into the next race because they have never really had a handle on the stress that their body's taking and whether or not, I mean, you get into a place where you get comfortable with your skin, you could be like wounded all the time. And you're just used to it. And you think that's your normal. That's your new normal, is being wounded. And so going into these races is just like another day in the park to you. And then you get mad because you don't feel like you're performing as well as you feel like you should. And you can't put your finger on what the problem is. Well, you might go into an event with 70% capacity. The way your muscles are functioning, your energy levels, just commonly the stress your body's got inherently carried around, you just you just can't produce the type of responses or performances you're looking for if you're always running at about half mast. So uh, I hate we talked about this too and, and I hate to keep reiterating it because I, I just thought it was a good topic. Is when someone comes up to me and says, I hope I can do this or I hope I can do that, the first thing that comes to my mind is my one of my favorite phrases is chance favors the prepared mind. I'll say it again. Chance favors the prepared mind. Luck and hope has nothing to do with it. I mean, clearly you can get lucky. If you were in third place and the top two guys miss a rig and end up doing burpees and you kind of scream past them, that's a lucky event. But you don't want to build your ship on that. You don't want to build your ship on hope or luck. You want to be prepared. You want to know going in what you're capable of, which draws me to the analytics of your training, whether you're paying attention to the heart rate cost, your recovery. When you wake up in the morning and you don't know whether you're in a better place than you were the day before or whether you should stay in bed because you're pretty beat up or not train that day, then you're really kind of random about your approach to your training, which is... Gosh, I could think of a hundred things that I could talk about right now. You got me amped up, dude.
1: <laughs> well, I'll say uh, saying as well, hope is not a strategy. So, uh, going right to, to what you said, I think to your point though, uh, heart rate variability. I know you know there's kind of a few discrepancies with it. I've started to do it in terms of attaching a heart rate monitor uh, about a month and a half ago to two months, and it makes it makes a lot of sense. I mean, in in some senses. Uh, you know, as you grow as an athlete, you're one with, you know, knowing how tired you are, how fatigued you are, if you're ready to go. But there were days where I was like, I f- felt ready, but I wasn't. And listening to your body, listening to the cost of work that's going to be needed for the prescribed workout for the day, uh, your recipe for failure is very high if you don't follow what your body says and, you know, what the data is saying.
0: Well, I got to tell you, I'm not that big a fan of of the concept of trying to encourage changes in your heart rate variability. I almost think it's a waste of time. And I know we actually did a show about this a while back. I had Miles Keller on and we talked about this. But I do look at heart rate as an indication as how well the body's responding to the work you're doing or the rest you're getting. And I'll go a step further. In my drawer, to my left hand here, I have about three or four pulse oximeters that were sent to me by a company. uh, I think it's called Massimo is the name of the company. And they were trying to get me to pay attention to it and actually did an interview with a gold medalist from the London Olympics in team pursuit cycling. And she trained with a pulse oximeter leading into that gold medal achievement. And essentially what the pulse oximeter does, it looks at how much oxygen is available in your blood, okay? It's basically looking at, through this infrared light into your finger, it's looking at what your blood is is looking like, and it's also looking at your pulse. And all this little bit of information, you can put this thing on your finger for, oh, geez, a minute, I think it is. Uh, I haven't done it for a while, but, and it'll start, it'll give you back a reading and let you know how things are going. And what the prescription that she used and she recommended to me was in the morning when you get up, you put it on to take a look at your uh, oxygen saturation. You do it before your workout. You do it after your workout. You do it before you go to bed. And you start keeping a log to look at how things are faring. And it gives you a pretty clean indication of whether you're ready to go or whether you're ready to work or how much intensity in the work you should be planning. And when you get a nice rhythm, and, and again, this is a little over the top, but if you don't do anything other than just get a sense of your resting heart rate, even if it's a function of you you know, palpitating your carotid artery just to see what your heart rate is telling you, in the morning, not even having put a monitor on. You can just get a sense of things. If you're waking up typically with a 60 beats per minute heart rate, one morning you wake up and it's 75, that's a red flag. If you wake up, it's a 90, you probably have a virus. You're probably coming down with a flu. Either (laughs) that that or you're pretty beat up. Yeah. So obviously that would be a good indication that you – either curb your enthusiasm for that day uh, or start asking yourself some hard questions. Are you dehydrated? Did you get enough rest? Have you been eating properly? Um, There's so many things going on. You know, there might be some stressors that you're dealing with. And then you just, if nothing else, it gives you a consciousness of how your body's faring. And when you get a, a diary of this information, you get to... Paint a pretty clean picture as to how things are, are going. And one of the things that I was going to touch on when I said I could go all day on this kind of thing is that I don't think any athlete that's a serious athlete, so I'm trying to keep from categorizing this athlete as a money winner, you know, a, a sponsored professional athlete. If you're competing and it means something to you, you should have a coach. I don't think you should be responsible for how your days are gonna go. You need somebody standing on the outside that can kick you in the ass when it's necessary or have you lay back and and rest when it's necessary. And I have, as you know, I have countless athletes that I work with all over the world. Just picked up another one in Singapore yesterday. And I'm looking at the analytics. I'm the guy that's looking at the data to see how things are going. And when I see things get a little ugly, I call a day off, and they might argue with me. Well, what do you mean? What? What? I'm supposed to? I was going to do this with my friend tomorrow, and uh, no, no, you're not. <laughs> you're staying home. You're getting some rest. You're taking two days off. And sometimes people need that that outside intervention to keep them on path. And guys like uh, Hunter is another guy that he'll call me, and you know we don't always share this, but. He'll call me and ask me, what do you think I should do? This is how I feel. This is what I did yesterday. What do you think I should do? And we'll start making decisions about what he might want to do or when he might need to do something next. And I don't always have control of all the things he does, but when he's not sure, I got to give him credit for being wise enough to reach outside of himself and get some opinion from somebody he trusts.
1: No, that makes sense. And, you know, I'll say it from, I think, the athlete to, you know, looking at a coach's perspective, I think the biggest barrier to people that don't want, you know, coaching or that almost just want a free ride on that is they buy the season pass, you know. Oh, it's too expensive. Uh, and, you know, you get into the, hey, if you want to be the best athlete you could possibly be, I, I mean, you in many ways you can't take your own advice. You need somebody that is – looking at your data understands that from a day-to-day basis, there's going to be days where the best protocol for you is rest. And I kind of have been facing that the last month or two, uh, just with a lot of transition and things like that. So I, uh, I completely agree with you, uh, coaching in whatever capacity, uh, running, working out, uh, it's just so necessary, especially when you get to this time of the season, um, and even the off season, um, if you're just not taking care of your body and taking care of what needs to get done, uh, you're going to fail. So,
0: Well, i got to tell you, I'm, I'm heading to Tahoe Friday morning. And I've got a passel of people that I coach that are going to be there. And I know I'm going to get bombarded with questions. I'm going to get bombarded with requests for treatment. They're going to want me to tape them, give them some body work, get them to a place where they can compete well. And I know some guys that are uh, seasoned athletes. Let's call them that instead of calling them old guys. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point is, is that when you get to over 40 years old, 45, working towards 50 years old, and you're putting this kind of stress on your body where, for example, let's say that last week you were at Killington. And not only did you do the beast, but you came back and did the Ultra Beast. You got two hard races in that weekend. And then a week later, you're going to go challenge 16.8 miles on a treacherous mountain in weather. A week later. Now, I could tell you with confidence, being an old dude myself, Bouncing back a week later and being 100% doesn't happen. You're not gonna race hard like that in one weekend and come back the next weekend, and I don't care what shaman you see during the week, they're not gonna get you 100% the following week. You're going into that next event probably at about 60% capacity if, if, if you're lucky. And odds are, the, if you're a season pass owner, you probably went into the previous week at 60%, which puts you at odds of being more like 50%, if not injured, this following week. And again, this is why I suggest not investing in a season pass, because you look at the calendar, you pick some events that you'd really like to do, you make smart decisions about how they should line up relative to the way you plan to train for them. And maybe pay for the A races. If you stick a few B races in there in in the interim, make those decisions based on training. I think I want to test my medal at this event, but I'm going to call it a B race. I'm not going to get too excited about it. If it doesn't go 100%, that's okay with me because I just want to feel what it feels like to get into the competition again. You know That kind of a mindset. And then Pay for the events that you really are planning to be 100% for, and knowing you paid for them, then put 100% into your training to be ready for those events. Does that make any sense?
1: Makes perfect sense, just because, you know, it almost becomes a liability at one point, you know, where, like to your first point, I mean, you, you almost feel obligated to register for every single race, you know, and... Then it goes back to the conversation of, oh, well, I'm racing on Saturday, so let me race on Sunday, you know, uh, just to get my money's worth. Uh, so it's it's tough. And, you know, dealing with that, I think over time, when you're 60% one race, you're doing it again. Sooner or later, you just combust or, you know, whether it's during the race or after the race and it lends itself to your A race ending up just not to a, what you wanted it to be. So it's uh, it's a recipe for disaster.
0: It certainly is, and I don't know whether I've drugged you off point, but no, I I think at the end of the day, and and at this time of the year, things are starting to wind down, and and wind up at the same time. Got all the championship events are coming up; they're coming to a head, and I think it's prudent if a lot of the athletes that are going to the OCR World Championships. That are planning not to go to Tahoe because their focus is a shorter distance event. And I think that's just that's intelligent, as opposed to doing something like a beast and then trying to come back and throw down hard for a 3K race. You've basically just butchered your speed. You just you just shifted gears, your body's just not going to give you the kind of speed that you had hoped for when the last event you were in took you over 14 or 15 miles you're just not going to be in the same physiological mindset to be able to produce that type of speed when you're asking your body to be all enduring it's just polar opposite effects
1: yeah and i mean whether that athlete you know champion or not they finish first i mean the cost of work that it's going to cost you know relative to whether they finish on the podium in tahoe and then they do it in OCR world championships, I mean, it's just, it, it it's just going to cost so much more work. I feel like just from the athlete standpoint, and it's, it's tough because in, in many of these cases, you know, you have Spartan world championships and then you have OCR world championships. And in many cases, all of those athletes are going to do the three K the 15 K and the team race. So uh, it's, it's just one of those where I think it's, it's hard to, I think, space it out, but if you want, especially if you're an athlete almost kind of in that middle realm, you have to almost make a decision on one or the other. You can't do both.
0: Yeah. Well, I I think that collectively it comes down to the tail wagging the dog, if that makes any sense. If it doesn't, doesn't, let me clarify. Yeah. So what we're having is we're having the event producers kind of dictate the theme for us when we're starting to schedule our training and our racing. And it's not there yet because everybody's still, the sport is so new. We're all kind of wandering around trying to figure out how it should look, how it should be shaped. You know, the whole concept of trying to make an Olympic berth and what that's gonna look like. And then you got these third parties that are starting to help or influence the decision about what the event's gonna look like in order for you to qualify as a walk-on, so to speak, to the Olympics. They might say, well, you know, the way we vision this is it should be like this, the distance should be like that, we like it more in a stadium environment. So they're kind of retooling what the event's supposed to look like and no longer becomes what we recognize as obstacle course racing anymore. And then you got these competing factions that are looking at what distances are gonna be most appealing. And because really at the end of the day, what these event producers are trying to do is pay the bills so they can put on a really good show. And then they're trying to entertain well enough to draw more people to their camp. So you got Tough Mudder, you got the OCR World Championships, you got the Spartan and all the other derivative producers that are out there trying to get in the game as well. And they're all dancing around trying to create the more entertaining venue to draw more and more people. But it's all about how they're going to make their living more so than what is an intelligent approach for the athlete. The athlete needs to make decisions for themselves. And a good coach should help their athletes make these decisions. Where are we going to shine? Where should we race? And to hell with everybody's opinion about where you should be or not. And, you know, and I've run into this a little bit with Hunter where people go, where has he been? What's he doing? Well, what he's doing is he's picking his races where he knows he's going to be in his best condition and he's preparing for those races. He's not randomly showing up at events because it's popular. He's going to find the events that he can compete at and he's going to win. And that's what his goal is, is to win events, not to just, you know, win the popular vote, so to speak. So, there's just a lot of soul searching that's going on. And I think that as, as we kind of, I'm getting way kind of global with this right now. But at the end of the day, I, I just think that it comes down to my concern as a coach is my athletes, what they're going to do next, why they're going to do it, and how we're going to get them there is prepared and effective as possible as opposed to, you know, the new cool venue that everybody's going to. And we just want to go there because part of that, that vibe. And, uh, and I know that's a lot of the sport right now is a lot of people just having such a good time with it. And by the way, I embrace it. I love it. I I love that people are having a good time with it. I love that they're getting out and doing things and people being encouraged to participate in events that they normally might not getting themselves off the couch. I mean, much credit to the guys that have promoted the events in such a way that causes people to be more active but i mean it gets to a place where it's like you know feeding goldfish right <laughs> you keep putting the food in the tank the things just keep eating until one day you see your fish floating at the top of the tank <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> yeah i mean and, and i i say it you know as just a. Uh, just having you know a great group of athletes in texas and just obviously we all want to stay injury free we all want to have great races and such and you're exactly right i think just understanding that to not get too caught in the hype of the sport obviously we want to have fun obviously we want to to race well but you know anytime something pops up oh i need to do this event and then something pops up next oh i need to do this event and you look at your calendar and you're like i have four races this month you know uh, so I think it just goes back to, I think just having that smart protocol, not getting caught up in what somebody else wants you to do, or, Hey, you should do this or, Hey, you should do that. And it goes back to having somebody in like, like you in your corner, uh, of just giving you the, the, Hey, like this is not the right thing or, Hey, you know, go for it. Because I think just having more minds to, to help you out, uh, in anything, uh, just lends yourself to be more successful. So.
0: You know, last year I did a survey and I forgot how many people I actually got to respond to it, but.
1: Was it, was this the, uh, the, the survey with how much you spent? Yes. On, uh, yeah. 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 Okay. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. It was, uh, it was quite interesting.
0: The average, very interesting. the average money that people spent in a season to participate in obstacle course racing was $6,000. The most amount of money, and there, by the way, there was more than a few people in this category, was upwards of $30,000 a year dedicated to obstacle course racing. Now, mind you, this is travel expenses and obviously the season pass or what have you and gear, whatever. But the level of commitment people have put them through, put themselves through in order to participate in this sport. And I don't know, I mean, I should have started out by asking what their income was, because I'd be curious to know what percentage of their gross income they're dedicating to this entertainment. You know me, I mean, I, I'm kind of a connoisseur of scotch and, and Cuban cigars, which can get really expensive.
1: The finer things in
0: life. The finer things in life. And I don't think I spent anywhere near that kind of money. You know, it's like, I've that's my vice. And I, I look at the racing almost like a vice. If you're, if you're getting more of it than you need, it's like alcoholism, right? There is a moderation Absolutely. thing. You got to, you got you to know when to say when. But um, when you think in terms of the, the dollars that people were spending to compete, and then I get pushback sometimes when people find out that to spend two days learning about their body learning about what they can do to correct some of the maladies that they're facing, learning how to improve their performance. And I get resistance for investing upwards of 400 $500 to get clinical diagnostics upon having two days worth of lecture and hands-on training. I just find that crazy. I mean, you're willing to throw your life into the river, and just hope for the best all year long, without a paddle, <laughs> without without a boat that's not leaking. You know, it, it's uh, I don't know. It's a whole other rant.
1: <sighs> yeah, I mean, and it's just funny too because what goes into that cost? You know, does it is it just because a lot of it I'm sure isn't even uh, a portion of that isn't even coaching. You know, it's just strictly travel, racing, gear. I don't even know if you'd count food in terms of just nutrition and and things like that because you're spending maybe extra money to be healthier and whatnot. But it's uh, it's just funny because you look look at the amount of races and whatnot. It it just the value skyrockets and I, I don't see it as much for me just because from my you know occupation I travel a ton so I pretty much use hotel points or flight points everywhere I go if I do go to destination races. But I think just for the normal goer. Uh, It it just adds up and then you you wonder at the end of the year like oh, you know, how did where's all my money? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's it's pretty much in in all the races that you did and and then also too, coming with that the injuries I think that's part of it too because maybe some of those people that spent you know upwards of twenty thirty thousand dollars It'd be nice to know if they got injured because you know uh, Hospitals aren't free so
0: no no and you start adding up the the massage care the chiropractic, the physical therapy, and whatever modalities you've been using to try to keep yourself patched. And uh, it starts to add up quite a bit. Uh, it just, it's honestly, from where I where I sit, knowing what I know, doing what I do, when I show up and we do an event and I get emails from, generally I get about 80% return, meaning that people have actually reached back out to me after fact to let me know or to thank me because they're no longer injured, their performances are improving, they have a, a compass, so to speak, that's navigating them now, where before they were just essentially lost, they're just throwing themselves out there into the abyss without really much direction and just trying to have as much fun as they can while they're doing it, while they're lost or not even aware that they're lost. And it just makes a big, big difference. So it's unfortunate, though. I mean, you know, it's really interesting, too. And I just again, uh, this is again off point, but when I travel around the country and the various places I go, there are also the places I didn't go because we just weren't popular enough for it. They just couldn't pull it together. People, yeah, I don't know. We thought we could do it, but there wasn't enough people interested. And I thought, how could there not be people interested in trying to improve their performance? or even day 2 175 bucks to have basically 3 quarters of a day of someone helping you to understand what you're doing wrong and helping you to understand how to make corrections to it. It's just to me where if you said, "Hey, we're going to go do this race tomorrow." They don't even ask you what it costs. <laughs> They're just yeah, going to what? show up, right?
1: Whether it's fifty dollars or thousand yeah. dollars, I mean, they'll, they'll put the register button. Yeah, and there there won't be no issues. They'd just
0: damn the torpedoes! Oh yeah, we better get a hotel room. Oh yeah, we got to rent that car. Oh yeah, we got to get there. We got oh geez, we we got to fly. So, next thing you know, I mean, I've got friends, again who will remain nameless, live in the Midwest. They fly to the East Coast to race. So. I know what it takes for me to get to the East Coast. Last time I went out, it was $600 round trip. And then I rented a car to the tune of, uh, for the weekend, I think it just shy of $300 for the car. And then a hotel room, which is on average a couple hundred bucks a night. And we're not even talking about get in fees, right?
1: Or food or anything, you know. I mean, there's just yeah. other miscellaneous costs. Yeah. <laughs> and
0: then turn around and go to the other coast. So you got the left coast and the right coast. Go to the other coast and do the same thing in the same month. That, that starts to stack up. That gets That gets expensive. And, you know, and they go back and say, well, you know, you could have a coach that's working with you for a couple hundred bucks a month at your beck and call, writing your program, looking at your data, helping you become a better athlete, helping you stay out of trouble, advising you when you get injured, what kind of things you should be doing or not doing, but oh, that's, ah, yeah, that's kind of expensive. <laughs> oh, me.
1: I, uh, and I mean, not to, you know, further advocate, but in a way, yes. Uh, I mean, I haven't been injured. I would say the whole year, and this is coming from somebody that, you know, before when we met, I mean, I just did Spartan racing a trifecta just for fun, almost just to achieve a goal. And, it's uh it makes just it i guess from the open racer or the person that has that reservation standpoint yeah you might feel a little iffy about it but i could say hey just make the investment you know understand data and use it to your advantage because i think you want to be built to last in this sport you don't want to be built to crash and i think that's what happens with people is they they get so excited about this sport they have so much natural ability and it carries them for so long and then all of a sudden the wheels fall off and they say hey what happened you know so it's it's unfortunate it really is
0: we kind of turned table on the conversation but it it just kind of (laughs) rolled out of my face you know i started to get upset (laughs) i started thinking about the the ridiculous nature of how some of these people approach these events and i when it comes down to orchestration you know it's like you get passionate about race cars, right? So you go out and buy yourself a 911 Turbo Carrera, but you can't drive for crap, right? So you take that $150,000 sports car and you wrap it around a tree because you just weren't prepared to deal with it. And you know what? The $150,000 is spit in a bucket when you compare it to somebody's body. When you're taking your body and just basically trashing it because you don't know how to drive it is almost irresponsible it really is and there's a lot of you know as a, the sport's starting to evolve now there's a lot of guys out there that are doing a pretty good job advising people and coaching people at various levels of of effort you know yancey's doing i think an amazing job he's got a ton of people essentially has surrounded himself with for lack of a better term i guess it's like an advisory board because you got a lot of guys that are seasoned athletes part of that that can sure. off, offer five or 10 cents in respect to what people might or might not want to do. When I look at the thread that they put up on the uh, Yancey Camp site, and I see people asking questions, and in a matter of seconds, they're getting responses from people that are giving pretty decent answers. Uh, I think that that's, that's golden. You know, Get outside yourself, get some help, have have somebody advise you, because you're quite likely not as good at it as you think you are.
1: Yeah. And I know, you know, you said we got off topic, but I don't think we did because this all goes back to how, how to, you know, perform well at all distances. I think this it just having somebody there or at least having a protocol that you follow and listening to, you know, your body, driving your body. I think all of that, I mean, it's a large formula, uh, but at the end of the day, the more you know of that formula, the more successful you'll be being injury free and performing at your best.
0: You're absolutely right. And I have so. to tell you, before, before I got into the sport of obstacle course racing, a lot of what i have done is, and I, I don't even think at the time I would even use the term coach. I was more of an advisor. I'd have athletes come to me, perform a VO2 test on them, look at the data, and look at the timeline to their next event. And the good thing about marathoners is they typically spread these events out and they put in the time to prepare for them. And I think that's simply because what came before them, that was the process. And they were taught that if you're going to do a marathon, you need about these many weeks or months to prepare for it. But someone might come to me and say, I'm going to do XYZ marathon in two months. And I've just conducted a test on them. And then I could pretty much sum up for them what they need to do over the next couple of months in order to prepare for it show them how to periodize their training so that they're going to end up essentially at their optimal performance come race day through trials that we produce for them, doing the time trials, looking at heart rate responses, looking at pace, things like this, develop a scheme. And then I've had people come to me like three days before a race and do a test on them and then actually tell them very specifically how I want them to do the race. I want your heart rate to be here for this length of time. And then I want it to be here, and then I want it to be here. And then from this point, it's on you to decide whether you could drop the hammer and finish this thing up. But relative to what we're seeing, this is what your finish time is gonna look like. And you would be surprised. It's scary how spot on the information ended up being. Where I get the call, dude, I was within a minute and a half of what you told me I was gonna do. And I didn't have any idea that I was gonna be able to perform that well. But they just followed the plan. They didn't go into the event, going back to what we talked about earlier, they were prepared. Chance favors a prepared mind. They went into the event with knowledge and assurity. They knew what they were gonna be able to produce relative to the information that they were given and the way they've, they've approached their training. And then they went into it solid. They just followed the plan and things come together for them. Rather than just, well, I think I'm going to try to push the first half and then try to hang on for the rest of it. Or I think I'm going to rain back for the first so-and-so and and then I'm going to try to put the hammer down. But it's all this try. And I love this. This past weekend I was at this clinic with rock tape. And this guy brought up a slide of Yoda. And Yoda says... There is no try. There's do or don't do. <laughs>
1: <Right>? <laughs> this Absolutely. is
0: amazing advice, right? You don't go in and try. You either do it or you don't do it. And if you didn't do it, it's probably because you weren't prepared for it.
1: If you, if you didn't do it, it's because you tried.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so uh, that's my new mantra these days. I've been wearing people out. So don't Don't you dare say you're going to try. You're either going to do it or don't do it. And it's funny because my wife has been playing with me. And I'll say, you know, be a good idea right now. Is, since we had a pretty big lunch, whatever, maybe a little bit from now, get up on the treadmill and maybe watch a movie and jog for about an hour. I said, you either do it or you don't do it. She goes, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> She's good. she chose to don't do it. Oh,
1: yeah. yeah well, at least she made the choice. Right? Exactly. You got to respect it for that. But, you know, it's interesting you say that also with the data standpoint Uh, for those that are not using data when running, which I mean, if you're not, uh, you're in a you're just not doing it right. But it just makes the process and it makes especially going from, you know, novice to intermediate or advanced. I just wanted to plug this in that much more enjoyable. Uh, I love to run every single time uh, a run run, uh, workout scheduled for me. And I think just learning the aerobic part of it, the anaerobic part of it, and then obviously going into a race and having that strategy uh, just makes the race more enjoyable and then your performance is that much more enjoyable. So,
0: Well, the information's out there. Absolutely. And, And the devices in order to capture the information is abundant. I mean, it just becomes a function of how much you're willing to spend and it brings us back to which race you decided not to do in order to own the equipment or which race you decided not to do in order to get the information and the education but it becomes a function of how much you need to put aside for the education and the data versus the amount of money you're going to spend in the actual training and the racing. But, um, and I'm going to do a plug and I shouldn't because I don't love the company and I'm just going to put that right out there. I'm going to, it's like a, it's like a, um, I tell people all the time, a pat on the back is 14 inches away from a kick in the ass. (laughs) But uh, Polar my, my new device of choice is the Polar M400. And the reason I like it is because it has the capacity of providing you with GPS. It has the capacity to provide you with accurate heart rate, opposed to trying to garner the heart rate off your wrist through an optical sensor, which, by the way, does not work for obstacle course racing athletes. It does not work. It's completely erroneous to think that that's going to be the way to gather your heart rate and for an up charge you could buy a sensor that goes on your shoe that will give you stride length stride frequency and you're going to be all in if you go to amazon.com and buy one of these dudes you're going to be all in for under $200 including shipping opposed to Going into some of the bigger dog monitors that are costing upwards of $600 to provide you with the same type of information. If the thing fails on you after a year, you can go buy another one. You could do that three times before you 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 break even. As opposed to having spent $600 on one of the bigger dog events, or excuse me, one of the bigger dog uh, monitors like the, the Garmin Phoenix or, and by the way, the the Garmin Phoenix is a great watch and Suto makes a great watch, but it's just getting expensive. I mean, really at the end of the day, what what you really need is the information. And I probably have about five or six athletes that I work with now that I've advised them to pick that up. And I had nobody come back and complain about it. My wife has got one on now. She fought me tooth and nail and I finally talked her into it. But
1: well, well, I'll tell you what I, because I, you know, it's funny. I think I bought a new watch when you had that post uh, in regards to. I think this was almost like in February or whatnot. Because I fell into the trap of using a wristwatch, and I got a refurbished Garmin Phoenix Three, which is still working very well, and the heart rate monitor for under four hundred. And I, I mean, I, I thought that was a steal in my opinion uh, in terms of getting a, a functional, and it's worked perfectly. So. I, I think, uh, making that investment, uh, the polar seems like it, like to your point, it seems like it, it's reputable and, uh, but th- having something like this is huge because you almost get addicted to it in, in some sense, but it's, it's
0: great. Well, mind you, before I started referring people to polar and remember, I started out by saying, I don't like polar. Yep. I don't like the company, but I, I do like the, the value in that particular monitor. I don't see any value in spending more money with Polar, and I certainly don't see more value in spending less with Polar. But you gotta get a chest strap if you wanna get accurate heart rate. And the Polar H7 and the Polar H10, which is the new version of the seven, is going to give you as accurate heart rate as you can possibly gather. And before I was pitching the Polar, I used to tell my clients, Find the watch that you really like to own. Go to the sites and find, you know, the big dog watch. Like at the time it was the Phoenix 3. And then go on to Craigslist, go on to eBay and go on to these these sites and see if you could find one that someone got frustrated with and decided they're going to sell it. Because with heart rate, because it's such a frustrating affair for so many people, they invest five, six hundred bucks in it because their friends got one and that it just pissed them off because they didn't know what they were doing with it and they want to get rid of it they want their money back and they end up giving it up like you did you got something for 400 bucks and i've seen that happen so many times where i've had people get a steal because they got it second hand and you know worst case scenario if you're concerned about somebody having that chest strap on you don't you could spend you know 50 bucks and get yourself a new chest strap and be golden so that was a good investment for you. And I and I, you probably do have a better watch for having done it. But you did spend twice as much money as I'm recommending.
1: Yeah, but then again, I didn't register for the season pass. so There I you go.
0: All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, so Sean, I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to Tahoe on Friday morning. Very excited about it. It's a last minute decision. I had not planned to go. People been asking me all year if I'm going to be at Tahoe and I kept saying, no, 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 I don't go to these races. And then I just got a wild hair and said, you know what, I, I need to go. I mean, I've got so many athletes that I coach that are going to be there and just a lot of people that I know and I care about that are going to be up there racing and a lot of people that I know and care about that are going to need some help from me and I can provide it. So I said, damn it, I'm going. So I'm going and I'm going to be up there. And the, whoever's listening... If you see some fat old man kind of wandering around, looks like he's lost, that's me. (laughs) Be sure to come up and say hello. If you see me uh, in one of these bars at night and you feel like you're compelled to offer me a a little bit of scotch, uh, by all means, come sit down with me, ask questions, hang out a little bit. I'm looking forward to meeting you.
1: I'm interested to see if you're going to wear a jacket on Saturday and then wear shorts on Sunday with uh, the (laughs) weather change uh, in terms of that. That'd be fun. Uh, Well, look,
0: because you said that I'm going to bring a pair of shorts, but right now I'm sitting here looking in my office at the scarves, the gloves, the jackets (laughs) and all the stuff that I plan on bringing with me because I I live in Southern California. You should see my backyard. It looks like Shangri-La, man. I've got like, It looks like you just went to Jamaica in my backyard. And it's like that all year. And so my, like right now, if I look out the window here, it's sunny and it's probably 80 degrees. And it was probably 80 yesterday and the day before. You know, I was at the track yesterday morning at 6 o'clock and it was 50 degrees and I thought I was going to die. So, wow. Yeah. But anyway, I think it's time we put a fork in this thing. Sean, thank you so much for uh, invoking the conversation and leading the pack here. Um, any parting statements before we go?
1: Uh, it was a great conversation. If you're racing in Tahoe this weekend, good luck. And if you're racing at OCR World Championships in a few weeks, I'd love to meet you and uh, just kind of just talk to you. So,
0: Very cool. Look, guys, thanks so much. Enjoy your weekend coming up. I'm already thinking about the weekend. It's Wednesday. hump <laughs> day.
1: See you, Rich. All right, buddy.
0: Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.